So what passes for newsworthy happenings these days seems to me to be irrelevant. And what passes by with no notice and no commentary, no careful observance or appreciation, is often magnificent. Much bigger news than what's on the news. And here's what I mean. What's happening in the House and the Senate with somebody who said something in a room full of people wearing suits and we're supposed to be up in arms and this makes headlines and this gets retweeted and reposted and commented on with frustration. Oh, somebody said something that offended you and it didn't match your values and that's news? Let me ask you a question. What is so shocking about humans doing exactly what you would expect them to do given who they are, what they believe, and then you place them in a circumstance that gives them opportunity to do that? Nothing. Come on. That's not even worth commenting on. It's not even worth noticing. But when that's what we want to focus on, anything juicy it seems or sleazy maybe even or gossipy or offensive or celebrities especially – We want to know what they're doing, what they think, what they said, politicians, what they're doing, what they think, business leaders, what they're doing, what they said, what they think. Especially if it creates a stir with somebody else saying, nah, then we got to make a headline. Scroll the feed and watch the news and there's this narrative about what's happening lately. Much of it is just drumming something up to talk about, drumming something up to be offended by, drumming something up to get clicks, to get attention. Of course, what sells? Flaky, dumb stuff sells. And I'm not against news, especially I'm not against old school, like Walter Cronkite style news, where events that actually do affect the nation are reported on without personal opinion injected into it. But this modern thing, the social media thing, where we, we are the media company. People talk about, oh, the media, the media is the worst. And I'm like, we really are the media. We're the media. We are. Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, we're the media. We and the official media are like now a 24 hours a day editorial opinion IV drip. And that has made us all just a little insane. You say, well, well, then what does matter, Tim? If you're saying all the stuff that we're focused on doesn't matter, what does matter? Well, here's what I think matters. Meanwhile, in the woods, far away from these supposedly newsworthy events, there's a guy who's feeding the magpies by hand that visit his window in his cabin in the woods. And he knows every magpie personally. And he's logging the temperature. And he's watching the mist roll in across the pond where he lives. And he knows the patterns of the weather that the first frost, he knows what it means for his vegetable garden. And he knows what's going on with his neighbors in town up the road. And he's helping them fix some broken down snow machines so that they can go into town and fetch supplies. But none of that makes the news. Why not? To me, that is real world, real life, the tangible stuff of embodied human existence. And to me, that's much more important much more significant than what some dude said in the room in the House and the Senate one time that offended somebody. That's not news. To me, the dude feeding the birds that come to his window is more relevant than whether Justin Bieber is attending Hillsong Church or whether he's gone and maybe let's speculate as to whether his decision had something to do with Carl Lentz's affair. What's my point? My point is that things that don't matter don't deserve our attention. And things that matter are not these ooh things. The things that matter are the little things. 
that directly affect your real tangible experience of daily life, your life. So that's my first point. Things that matter, don't matter don't deserve our attention. Now, I have a second point too. We're fighting the wrong fight. We seem to have these deeply held convictions about our role in society, and I think those assumptions about our role in society are mistaken. Here's what I mean. We seem to think that a good controlling metaphor for the Christian experience of what it is to live in America is Israel at home in the Old Testament, in the Holy Land, as citizens, as God's chosen nation, when actually a much better controlling metaphor for our existence here as Christians in the United States is Israel in Babylon, in exile, in a foreign pagan land, a land ignorant of God's ways, so that God's people are foreigners and exiles who actually serve as a little minority with very little power, but hopefully they can use the integrity of their lives as influence, as quiet, salt, light, and yeast. I think that's a much better controlling narrative for us to consider. Jeremiah says that rather than hate the fact that you're in exile and just pray that it goes quick so you can get back home and back to really living, he says, pray for the peace of the city of your exile. Pray for the peace of the city of your exile because your lot, your, the quality of your life is directly connected to the quality of this pagan nation you find yourself in. So instead of hating them and just wanting to get away from them or wanting to control them, how about you pray for God to do a thing that you might be able to live a full life, even though you're in a foreign land. It's going to be a while. So this is your mission to live well on hostile territory. This is a missionary mindset. And I think that we have lacked that controlling narrative. It seems to me that we really don't need any more angry or zealous or self-righteous prophets who lambast godless people or rail against the state of things. It seems to me that what we need are some people who are helpful and insightful, who are funny and who are happy, who have really high standards of no compromise for themselves, but they have really low expectations for everyone else, especially for people who don't share their belief in Jesus. And they view this life like an experiment to see, like a game to see what can I really do with my limited time, energy, relationships, and the limited skill set that I have at my disposal? What can I do with my time that might be worth doing before I die? And maybe some people will say, well, I don't want to be happy. I don't want to live a meaningful life. Okay, well, maybe, maybe you just want to be angry and find someone to blame. That's not my concern. My concern is to go after doing that which is worth doing with your one short life, right? So whatever you're spending your time on, that's what you're spending your life on. Is what you're doing right now, is it worth your life? Would you give your life for it? Well, you are. And you say, well, yeah, I should think about that later once I have more time. Well, you're making a decision. Not making a decision is making a decision, Time's our most precious resource. Wasted money can be regained. Even lost friendships can be restored. But time, once logged, cannot be done over again. Moses prays that God would help us to number our days aright in order that we could gain a heart of wisdom. Paul counsels us to make the most of the time because the days are, he calls them evil. What he means is the days are fraught with spiritual hostility. So if we're not wise, we're probably going to be losing the fight. And we should really be thinking through at the outset, what are we going to do with the resistance that we will face? 
And in terms of the social resistance, I think we need some of these, these people I just talked about, the people we need, not angry, hostile critics of the culture. What we need are these resilient, happy, insightful people. These resilient souls, when, it, when they face the social resistance, they should gently instruct. And then when it becomes clear that some specific people have seriously like no interest in laughing with us, being helped by us, or sharing our joy, or dancing to the rhythm our hearts are hearing, well, we need to honor that choice. And consider the fact that we offered them what we are finding life in, the fact that we made the offer, we need to consider that a success on our part and conclude, no problem, you must not be my audience, and that's a helpful discovery for us both, so thank you for your time, and I hope you genuinely have a good day. And sometimes it's a-okay to mutually wipe the dust from our feet and hand each other over to the wisdom of the ages and say, look, I don't know. At the end of the day, even after we leave, I have no need to be, be the expert on why you did what you did and even why I'm doing what I'm doing. I don't have to be the expert on what's wrong with everyone else. We're hardly the expert on what's wrong with us. And we don't need to understand the meaning of every single one of life's hurts and carefully and closely examine it and parse it out. We're not going to understand our lives anytime soon. In fact, one thing I know for sure is that I don't understand the meaning of my life right now. Would it really have helped Job if God had pulled back the veil of the mystery? I doubt it. Much of the point of his story seems to have been to press on with fidelity to God. You might say it this way, to press on with fidelity to your life's purpose in the face of unknowing and uncertainty and unanswered questions. And I think that's probably a pretty good definition of faith, pressing on with my life's purpose in spite of unknowing. And then you could say, well, what is life's purpose? Well, obviously somebody's going to say, life's purpose is to set the world right, to set the world right. But let me ask you, how would you go about setting the world right? I mean... (laughs) First of all, I don't think we can, and I don't expect we ever will set the world right. And I personally think it's critically important that we actually give up on setting the world right immediately. I would say, go take a few days, go take a few weeks and unload that one. Get rid of it. Renounce it. You aren't the savior. Well, then what's our mission if it ain't set in the world right? I think our primary task, and this goes back all the way to the beginning, where there's underlying assumptions. I'm trying to say there's underlying assumptions. We're focused on what doesn't matter, and we have these wrong narratives for how to understand the purpose of our life here in in the West, in the world. So what is our task? I think our task, our primary task, is an inside job. In fact... I'm blocking my own healing with all these savior complexes. It's a distraction from what I'm here to do. It's a form of plausible deniability when the annals of history are written. Well, don't blame me, even though I was terrible. At least I tried. And when I say it's an inside task, that our primary job is an inside job, what I mean is that the real battle is between good and evil. It is between order and chaos. It is between love and callousness. It is between resentment and embrace. It is between faith and despair. But I'm saying that battle runs through every heart. 
not just through the society, it runs through each heart. My heart, your heart. We've met the enemy, in other words, and he is us. We've met the enemy and he is us. Therefore, our primary task is an inside job. Do I experience peace with God that dominates my consciousness? Am I daily experiencing deep peace, hope, and joy in Jesus? If not, then that should be my mission. That should be my mission for the next decade or so. Daily experiencing peace, hope, and joy in Jesus should be your mission for the next decade or so before you try to go save the world, fix the world, set the world right. Perhaps after that, after a decade of that, you might arrive at the sort of perspective that would be required to not make matters worse as you attempt to fix complex social structures. Especially when we are just a small mirror image of what's wrong with the world, and we don't even seem to be aware of that. So here's kind of where I'm currently at. Sometimes while I'm jogging, sometimes the Lord will indicate to me that he would appreciate if I picked up the litter that I find on the ground and deposit it in the nearest garbage receptacle, so I do. And you could say that I'm leaving things a little better than I found them. And it does seem that it might be a good general rule to leave things better than you found them. Humans, as delegated authorities, stewards of the creation, ought to leave the place a bit better than we found it, not worse. But where Father Stephen Freeman really helped me was when he said that we don't just want to be helpful. We don't just want to improve the world. We don't just want to minimize or limit. We want to end it. We want to end gun violence and sexual assault and poverty and disease and injustices of all kinds. Well, of course we want to, but is that really within our power? I mean, where do these sins, where do these wrongs, where do these ills, where do these injustices, where do they come from? They don't just come from the culture. They don't come from the environment. They come from the human heart. They come from the nature of humanity. I mean, you could take away all the guns and you end gun violence, but you would still have knife violence, fist violence, tooth violence, heart violence, because the heart, the nature of humans is still what it is. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. The same Lord, by the way, who served the poor, cared for the poor, and calls each and every one of us to serve and care for the poor. In saying the poor you will always have with you, he was not saying we should give up on caring for people who happen to be experiencing poverty. That's not what he's saying. One person might think, Okay, then, I see what you're saying, Tim. If the problem is in the heart, the gospel is the answer, the spirit comes in, slavery to sin is broken, bam, that's the answer, world evangelism. Every person under the influence of the Holy Spirit is the answer. Mm. Here's my perspective on that. Judging by today's standards, even if every single person were a Christian, were a saint, that would not yet set the world right. You hear me loud and clear, right? Most of us want to remake the world in our own image, If everyone thought like us, we think the world would be fixed. And I'm trying to say, 
What colossal arrogance and blindness. If the world was just like you, it would still not be right, because you, my friend, are fraught with all manner of sins and flaws. So am I. So what hope is there to ever set the world right? Well, the ancient faith calls it the blessed hope, that at Christ's parousia, the dead will rise, immortal, the saints on earth will be transformed in a moment, and the wicked shall be purged away, and whatever wickedness is left in us will be purified, so that we will be with the Lord forever, without cancer or crime or locks on doors or jails or lawyers. We won't need them anymore. So yes, we can leave the world a bit better than we found it, but our mission, our purpose has got to be an inside job in the meantime of not trying to end it, not trying to fix it, but trying to leave it a little better. And to leave it a little better means we got to fight the real fight we're in, which is an inside job of, of experiencing enduring peace, hope, and joy in Jesus daily and living with our focus on the blessings and the fights of our tangible, practical daily life, the one we're actually in, fighting the fight we're in, winning the battles that actually face us, redeeming the time because the days are evil and not missing the point. Pierce Pettis wrote a song years ago called Come Home. I'm going to read the lyrics. I remember how you loved this holy city in the spring, fresh cut flowers in the market, children running in the street, but it's changed so much. I don't think you'd recognize a thing. Now it's just a red light district and an international disgrace. Come home, come home. You've been gone so long. Come home. Papers and petitions have been piling at the door, nailed to the door. Thieves break in at night, they say, you won't be back no more, no. And your wife is so lethargic, so scattered and so frail, she's in pieces. And the child who's never known you just stands at the wall and wails. Come home, come home. You've been gone so long, come home. Yellow ribbons round the olive trees you planted in the park. Only the brave or foolish ever walk there after dark. All around the world a table set, and there's an empty place. Still, we go through the motions, breaking bread and saying grace. But the ones you left to run your business ran it right into the ground. Each one a law unto himself, leading followers around. And in the babble of the streets, amid the jostling of the crowd on every side, like helpless sheep, it makes me want to cry aloud. Come home, come home. You've been gone so long. Come home.